This is a story about stories, about the kind you tell around a campfire at night, the kind you read about on the internet and share with your friends. This is a story about a mystery. It's a story about why we find stories so compelling, about how they can bring people together and unite them behind a common cause, and how they can be manipulated for individual gain. It's a story about the line between investigative journalism and entertainment, behind exposing evil and exploiting it. This is a story about skepticism, but it's also a story about belief, about people's ability to believe in something even if they don't understand it. This is a story about a mystery. This is a story about a vigilante ex-cop, a possible government cover-up, and 52 million acres of wild, untamed country. My name is Jesse Carey. I'm a writer, a journalist, and a podcaster. And this is Hiding Something. Chapter 1, Down the Rabbit Hole In the spring of 1999, Carl Landers and two of his friends from a running club traveled to Shasta Trinity National Forest to climb Mount Shasta, the fifth highest peak in the state of California. Mount Shasta is an interesting place. Known for its natural beauty, Mount Shasta holds a unique place in local Native American lore and has frequently been the site of spiritual rituals for local tribes and even those in the New Age community. But Landers and his friends were more interested in the natural wonder of the area and the challenge of hiking such a picturesque and well-mapped mountain. But despite its remote location, it's a popular place to visit, and summiting it isn't uncommon. There's even a system where hikers can pay for a summit pass that helps fund projects on the mountain. Even at the age of 69, Landers enjoyed challenges like attempting to summit Mount Shasta. Landers was a daily runner and had even completed the Boston Marathon. He was also familiar with the terrain and had attempted the summit the previous year. The night before the hike, Carl and two friends stayed at a nearby hotel and left early for the trailhead. After hiking for four miles, they set up camp at a popular camping spot, a few hundred feet from Lake Helen, another popular spot on the mountain where that week, nearly 100 people were also camping. That night, Carl started feeling the effects of altitude and an upset stomach, and in the morning, told his friends that he was going to get a head start and meet them by the lake just up ahead. A half hour later, his hiking buddies set out for the lake too. They didn't see Carl, and after one of them started experiencing his own stomach issues, he too went back to the tent to see if Carl had walked back and they'd somehow missed him. When his other friend reached the lake, there was no sign of Carl. A park ranger told his friend that he did see one other hiker that morning, but he didn't match Carl's description. He wasn't at the lake, and he wasn't at the campground. Carl Landers had vanished. The next morning, police began to search the area, though there weren't many places for Carl to hide. This wasn't a heavily wooded area. It was mostly rocks and a light dusting of snow. Finding a missing hiker should be relatively easy. After all, he couldn't have gotten far. It had only been a half hour since he'd been seen. Within hours, though, forest rangers, professional mountain guides, and dozens of volunteers joined Carl's friends in the search. The National Guard would later deploy a helicopter ambulance and another helicopter with high-tech infrared sensors got involved. Helicopters even dropped searchers at the summit on the off chance Carl had struck out on his own and gotten stuck. But as they made their way down, there was no sign of Carl. Specially trained dogs searched the area, but still nothing. The search continued for days, with dozens of search and rescue experts joining in. But, despite the helicopters, dogs, infrared, 
in a relatively open area, Carl Landers was just gone. He's never been seen again. The case of Carl Landers is strange and a little creepy, but compared to some of the other cases of people going missing in America's national parks, it's nothing when it comes to the creepiness factor. In recent decades, there have been dozens of documented cases of seemingly very strange things happening in the more than 52 million acres of national parkland. Much of this land is wild country, relatively untouched by development or infrastructure. Yes, there are thousands of miles of trails and well-equipped campgrounds, but there are also dense forests, remote swamplands, rocky terrain, cave complexes, and more. In some cases, the bodies of missing people are found in places that would seem almost impossible to reach, like on the top of cliffs, miles from where they vanished. In some cases, autopsies find no cause of death. Sometimes, items of clothing are removed and placed neatly, folded in a pile nearby. Many times, bodies are found in areas that have been searched by professionals and highly trained dogs just days before. In situations where people are found alive, there are documented cases of people having no recollection of going missing or where they were in the days that they were missing. Kids who've gone missing have disturbingly calmly said very unsettling things about what they saw when they were gone. These cases, some of which we'll dig into more later this season, are strange, but according to one retired law enforcement official, they aren't even the strangest part of this story. My name is Dave Politis. And I'm a former police detective and current investigative author focused primarily on mysterious disappearances in the North American wilderness. My journey into the disappearances began when I was visiting a national park and was approached by two park rangers who knew I was an author. They described strange circumstances over the years involving missing hikers. I immediately began looking into the phenomena. Eight years and eight books later, I've now researched 1,200 cases that fit the profile we are about to examine. That's David Polites, as he explains in that clip from his documentary, Missing 411, The Hunted, which you can watch right now on Amazon Prime Video. Now, along with the dramatic action movie style music you just heard in that clip, the film has pretty good production value visually. It shows just how well-funded his research has become. But before he was a filmmaker and author, he spent two decades in law enforcement, climbing his way up the ladder from the SWAT team and street crimes unit to the detective division in the San Jose Police Department. Today, he's responsible for one of the internet's strangest and creepiest rabbit holes, one that we'll be taking a deep dive into on this podcast. To hear Pilates explain it, which he's done in dozens of podcast appearances and calls into the cult favorite late night radio show, Coast to Coast AM, the real mystery started when he began investigating missing persons cases in the parks near his Northern California home. The circumstances of some of the disappearances just didn't add up. The wilderness, it turns out, were a lot different than the streets of San Jose. Baffled by what he was hearing from park rangers, Pilates decided to reach out to the National Park Service to get an idea of the scope of the mystery. That's when he says he realized something much more sinister than just creepy camping stories could be afoot. Here he is on a podcast called Veritas Radio, which you can find at veritasradio.com. The National Park Service has a large contingent of federally trained police officers, and they have a law enforcement branch that has a chief and assistant chief and all the hierarchy you'd see in a city police department. But these are federally trained at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, super good outstanding training, better than most police departments get. Well, we knew that they had this. We know that they're smart people. And uh, 
most medium-sized police departments and larger always have lists of missing people in their department, and most of them are on a website that the department has. And the general feeling in law enforcement is the more publicity you get about missing people, the better. And uh, so we filed a Freedom of Information Act request against the National Park Service, and we asked for a list of people missing in their jurisdiction. 183 different locations, monuments, etc., and we got a response back that uh, they didn't have any. So we filed again, thinking it's a semantical issue, and we get a call back from an attorney from the National Park Service asking us why we wanted the information. Well, before you go barking up a tree, you want to know what's up that tree, and you want to know that you don't make the mistakes and, and have obstructions towards getting that info. So I told the attorney, I said, hey, that's an inappropriate question, because according to the Freedom of Information Act, you can't use that as part of the reason whether you give the information up or not. So I said, I'm reluctant to say it other than it's for some research. And he says, well, you're not going to get it. And I said, what do you mean I'm not going to get it? And he says, well, we don't keep track of that information. I said, what do you mean you don't keep track? And he goes, we don't have a list of missing people. And I said, well, you guys have lists of movies that you made at various national park landmarks and locations. You have a list of that online. You have a list of all the inventory you have of product at the parks. So you're telling me that you don't have a list of missing people and where they disappeared in your parks. That's correct. And I said, okay, well, I'll find out, file another Freedom of Information Act request because I'm a published author. There's an exemption for the cost for that. Make a long story short, I filed the exemption and I got a response back saying that my books were not in enough libraries to qualify for that exemption. <laughs> That's laughable. So we did a lot of research, and there's no such thing. There's no such requirement that you have to be in a certain amount of libraries. It just says you have to be a published author. And then they came back and said, because you're not in enough libraries, it's going to cost you $34,000 for a list of missing people from Yosemite, because we don't have it. We're going to have to put it together. And then if you want it from our entire system, it's going to cost you $1.4 million. Now, piggyback to that, I filed the same sort of Freedom of Information Act request with the United States Forest Service. And they came back with almost an identical response saying, we don't have a list of missing people from our jurisdiction. It's unbelievable to me and everybody else who hears it. Pilates started digging. Without the assistance of an actual database of missing people, Pilates started doing his own independent research, scouring newspapers and law enforcement reports for more cases. In some cases, he'd personally contact families to confirm some of the eerie details, like victims reporting missing time, strange sounds heard during searches, locations that were seemingly impossible for victims to make it to unaided. For the last 10 years, he's been compiling his findings in a series of self-published books that comprise of his ever-growing Missing 411 series. Each volume, that carries subtitles like Unexplained Disappearances of North Americans That Have Never Been Solved and a sobering coincidence, meticulously outline individual cases of people who go missing in America's national parks. The books document the cases, but it's his AM radio and podcast appearances that have made Pilates into a sort of internet cult celebrity. He's a frequent guest on shows that like to talk about mysterious happenings. But Pilates never takes the bait and openly suggests that something paranormal is happening in America's sprawling backyard. Instead, he's the type of guy that likes to stick to just the facts. There's a famous internet joke that goes, if you ever meet someone who calls Gatorade flavors the actual name of the flavor instead of just the color, they're 100% a cop. David Pilates isn't the type of guy who orders a blue Gatorade. 
He's more of a frost glacier freeze kind of guy. In interviews, which he does frequently, he talks about cases like he's reading a police report, citing only the facts, no matter how strange they are, in a matter-of-fact manner. And the details do get very, very eerie. The podcast appearances help make National Park disappearances a topic of internet lore. But in 2005, a Redditor who goes by the name of Search and Rescue Woods helps stoke the fire. Reddit, for the unacquainted, essentially operates as a hive mind message board. Users can write posts under topical subreddits, and other users can upvote the best content, which eventually get more and more exposure. Reddit's power can't be underestimated. It calls itself the front page of the internet for a reason. If a post breaks out on Reddit, a lot of very influential people who help dictate what other people see will know about it. In 2015, Search and Rescue Woods would make a series of seven posts to the wildly popular No Sleep subreddit, where users exchanged creepy fiction and nonfiction stories. The threat exploded, garnering tens of thousands of upvotes, thousands of comments, and winning Reddit's coveted Best Monthly Winner 2015 award. In internet culture, that's a really big deal. We have an actor reading the post. I wasn't sure where else to post these stories, so I figured I'd share them here. I've been a search and rescue officer for a few years now, and along the way I've seen some things that I think you guys will be interested in. The following threads from Search and Rescue Woods have become, for reasons we'll get into later this season, known as the Stare series, and they've become stuff of internet legend. A few times, I've been out on my own, searching with a canine, and they've tried to lead me straight up cliffs. Not hills, not even rock faces. Straight, sheer cliffs with no possible handholds. It's always baffling, and in those cases, we usually find the person on the other side of the cliff or miles away from where the canine has led us. I'm sure there's an explanation, but it's sort of strange. As far as missing persons go, I'd say about half the calls I get are related to that. The others are rescue calls. People who fall down cliffs and hurt themselves, get injured by fire. You wouldn't believe how often this happens, mostly drunk kids get bitten or stung by animals or insects. We're a tight team, and we have veterans who are excellent at finding signs of lost people. That's what makes these cases where we never find any trace of them so frustrating. One in particular was upsetting for all of us, because we did find a trace of them, but it just led to more questions than answers. An older man had been hiking alone on a well-established trail, but his wife called to say that he hadn't come home when he should have. Apparently, he had a history of seizures, and she was worried that he hadn't taken his medication and had suffered one out on the trail. Before you ask, I have no idea why he thought it was okay to go out alone or why she didn't go with him. I don't ask about that kind of thing because, past a certain point, it really doesn't matter. Someone is missing, and it's my job to find them. We went out in a standard search formation, and it wasn't long before one of our vets found signs that the guy had gone off the trail. We grouped up and followed him, spreading out in a fan to make sure we were covering as much ground as possible. Suddenly, a call comes over the radio telling us to all head back to the vet's location, and we come right away because this usually means the missing person is injured, and we need a full team to help get them out safely. We meet back up, and the vet is just standing at the base of a tree with his hands on the sides of his head. I ask my buddy what's going on, and he points up into the branches of this tree. I almost couldn't believe what I was seeing. 
but there's a walking stick dangling from a branch at least 30 feet off the ground. The little strap thing on the handle has been looped around the branch, and it's just hanging there. There's no way the guy could have tossed it up that far, and we don't see any other signs that he's still in the area. We call up into the tree, but it's obvious no one's in it. We're all just sort of left scratching our heads. We keep searching for the guy, but we never find him. We even bring our canines out, but they lose his scent long before this tree. Eventually, the search is called off, because there are other calls we have to attend to, and past a certain point, there's not much we can do. The guy's wife called us every day for months, asking if we'd found her husband, and it was heartbreaking to hear her get more and more hopeless each time. I'm not sure why this call in particular was so upsetting, but I think it was just the sheer improbability of it. That and the questions that were raised. How the hell had this guy's cane ended up there? Did someone kill him and toss that up there as some weird trophy? We did our best to find him, but it was almost like a taunt. We still talk about that one from time to time. Here's another from where the Reddit threads get their names. This is the last one I'll tell, and it's probably the weirdest story I have. Now, I don't know if this is true in every search and rescue unit, but in mine, it's sort of an unspoken, regular thing we run into. You can try asking about it with other search and rescue officers, but even if they know what you're talking about, they probably won't say anything about it. We've been told not to talk about it by our superiors, and at this point, we've all gotten so used to it that it doesn't even seem weird anymore. On just about every case where we're really far into the wilderness, I'm talking 30 or 40 miles, at some point we'll find a staircase in the middle of the woods. It's almost like if you took the stairs in your house, cut them out, and put them in the forest. I asked about it for the first time I saw some, and the other officer just told me not to worry about it, that it was normal. Everyone I asked said the same thing. I wanted to go check them out, but I was told, very emphatically, that I should never go near any of them. I just sort of ignore them now when I run into them because it happens so frequently. Within a few weeks of posting the viral stories and a couple of other unrelated posts, the user search and rescue woods vanished. Weeks passed, then months, then years. But before she disappeared, as the posts were getting so much attention, search and rescue woods wrote this. There's been an overwhelming amount of people mentioning the similarity between some of my stories and those of David Polites. I assure you, I'm not trying to rip him off in any way. I've got nothing but respect for the guy. He's actually what inspired me to write this, because I can verify a lot of the things he talks about. We do have a lot of these strange missing persons cases, and most of the time they aren't solved. Either that, or we find them in places they have no business being. That's a common theme in Polite's stories. When people are found, they're often in places that simply don't make sense for them to be in. Take the case of young Keith Perkins, one of the stories highlighted in the Missing 411 films. This wasn't a national park, but it is a remote area of the country, an unincorporated community called Ritter, Oregon. It's a rugged terrain of rocky hills and patches of evergreen as far as the eye can see. At the time, it was winter in Oregon, and snow covered the rolling hills. Keith was just two years old on the afternoon he went missing from his family's property. As soon as his parents noticed he was gone, 
They began tracing his footsteps in the snow. It appeared that the toddler was walking towards the wilderness, but bafflingly, his footprints just stopped. No animal or other human footprints were anywhere near to be found. It looked like Carl Perkins had just vanished. After 19 hours of frantic searching, Keith was found alive. He was 15 miles away from his home, laying face down on a frozen lake with his jacket off. Keith was unharmed. But when asked why he walked off, how he possibly traveled 15 miles in the dark of night, in the snow with no supplies, and how he could possibly survive in freezing temperatures, Keith's response baffled everyone. He couldn't remember anything about his night in the wild, or why he'd walked off in the first place. Keith's story is strange, but it's far from the strangest. In fact, this story is about to get a lot weirder. But before we go too far forward, there's something you should know about Search and Rescue Woods and David Politis. That's next time on Hiding Something. Hiding Something is a production of the Ironclad Content Network. All episodes are written by me, Jesse Carey. Our editor and post-production producer is Chandler Strang. And hey, listen, if you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really does help more people discover the show. All right, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.